Hi, I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are scholars, poets, and writers, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are what's the author responding to, what the possible tensions between author, text, and audience, whose interpretations matter, what could be a miscitation, and how language is used and constructed. My guest today is Alan E. S. Lumba, a writer, researcher, and teacher of the Philippines and the world. Lumba engages questions of racial capitalism, imperialism, and decolonization through materialist theoretical approaches, drawing from political economy, post-colonial, feminist, ethnic, queer, and disability studies. His book, Monetary Authorities, Capitalism and Decolonization in the American Colonial Philippines from Duke University Press, charts the historical entanglements and tensions between race, knowledge, sovereignty, and the capitalist market in the U.S. and the Philippines. He's currently an assistant professor of history at Concordia University in Montreal. So, Alan, I'm curious to know if monetary authorities was shaped by your dissertation. More generally, how did you become interested in interrogating money and currency as your primary objects of scholarship as tools to reinforce racial and class hierarchies and U.S. control? Well, first, I forgot to thank you in our pre-talk, but just <laughs> thanks for inviting me. Um, I really like the other people that you've interviewed. I don't actually know any of them, which is really nice. I don't know them personally, but I'm like fans of their work. Mm-hmm. And then there's also people who are like fiction and poets and these different kinds of writers, which I find really like cool that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. My book is, I think, <laughs> I think your email you kind of talked about a little bit how it's a little different maybe from the other <laughs> the other people you've interviewed. I think for me, it does come out of my dissertation. All of the things that I'm interested in are sort of autobiographical. So this comes out of my own um, curiosity about my, the sort of my experience leaving the Philippines and why my family left the Philippines and the kind of upbringing I had. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And I just remember, like I grew up in the Philippines or in Pasay, which is a little bit outside Manila, about six, six, seven years. And I just remember being surrounded by cousins and aunts and uncles and friends. And even though we kind of lived with my grandparents, so obviously we didn't have our own place. I remember my mom having more autonomy, mm-hmm. uh, being able to move around. My siblings too. I'm much younger than my siblings, so I just remember things being different, very different from the way I grew up in the U.S., mm-hmm. where we were still kind of, you know, very, you know, living month to month. We had family, but kind of spread out across the Pacific Northwest. It was very different because in Oregon, just predominantly white state. Um, and I just thought about how much money played a part in, in mm-hmm. how our day-to-day lives, but also how much just in, in conversations within the Filipino community, just how much worrying about like, uh, remittances, sending money back or sending stuff back, mm-hmm. thinking about the exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and the and the Philippine peso and those things were really just kind of jumbled up in my memories. And so, when I actually, I guess, became a little older, I was a terrible undergraduate student. Didn't really <laughs> didn't do. I did okay in undergraduate just because I was okay at writing and reading or whatever. But I went to Oregon State University, and it wasn't until basically graduated that I became more politically conscious thanks to radical friends and really inspired by black radical organizations, Asian American radical organizations in the 60s and 70s and and especially their stance on anti-capitalism and anti-imperialism and of course anti-racism. So those are things that I brought with me and kind of brought me to San Francisco to start a master's there in history. I was inspired by the idea of the Bay Area. (laughs) Um, 
And I linked up with other Filipino organizers, a lot of organizers there around immigration rights. And and uh, I'm sort of fighting against neoliberalism and neocolonialism in the Philippines. And again, it brought me back to these questions around money. And when I ended up deciding to go into the <laughs> go for a PhD, I worked with one of the few Filipinos at the time who taught Philippine studies, mm-hmm. uh, Vince Rafael at UW at University of Washington. And I really wanted to look at an object that we take for granted, right, in mm-hmm. our ordinary lives. So for me, money became this object. It's part of this quotidian yeah. day-to-day life. And we don't think about the kind of and the way it works is really how it occludes those histories of racial colonial violence, how specifically the U.S. dollar has this history. Its ascendancy is based off of reproducing, yeah. you know, global hierarchies between rich nations, poor nations, global north, global south, mm-hmm. the so-called nations of color and the so-called white nations. And so these are things that I thought about and found in in the history of the American colonial Philippines, mm-hmm. um, that this kind of universal argument for the gold standard was a white supremacist argument. It was an argument for naturalizing or normalizing real and capitalist relations in and through this idea of racial underdevelopment in terms of the Filipinos as not being racially developed in the same way as European or Anglo-American societies. And so the dollar really condenses that, I think, as, a, as an object. Mm-hmm. And seeing how the, how the colonial Philippine currency, they call it currency reforms, but really it was an establishment through force of a new current colonial currency system based on the U.S. dollar, right? Mm-hmm. But it's done through this justification of supposedly a universal standard, the gold standard. I think I wrote in an email that I felt out of my depth when I was seeing you my question. <laughs> because I few historians, but I felt like I didn't can't remember the last time I read economics, because I felt like there was some sort of um critique on economic theory. I think the only two people I've had on the podcast who talked about money. Dr. Tamara Knopper, she does like credit right. history, credit scoring. And uh, Dr. Victor Ray, he, I think he made an analogy to like the, the idea of race as a social construct. And one of his examples was money is also a social construct. Right. So those were the only times where on my podcast, we talked about this thing called money, but I'm really glad to have read your book to think about this historical object and how it's historicized to just, as you said, to make the justification for market logic that centers the U.S. specifically. So I hope the questions I'm asking you to tonight, well, my night, your morning, <laughs> um, make sense in what I'm trying to get at. So my follow-up question is to ask you about this. I'm really interested in how disciplinary disciplines can be, even though we, we all kind of think of interdisciplinary as this nice gesture to working together through different collaborations and homes and departments. During your training and studies as a historian, did you witness some resistance to your using the frameworks of racial capitalism and decolonization? And would you consider your book as contributing to discussions on critical race theory? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It hits a lot of issues that I think is a lot of debates that's ongoing right now, especially in in the left or ethnic studies or even just in terms of broader humanities and social Mm -hmm. sciences. I think there is a supposed embrace of interdisciplinary, right? But when it comes down to it, most of the ways the neoliberal university works is through like a market knowledge where it is the idea that if if you're not getting majors in your particular discipline, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the university will not incentivize that, right? It'll, it'll not recognize your worth. So... Oftentimes, the reaction has been closing ranks around the discipline, mm-hmm. and this comes in various registers. And you know, for historians, the AHA recently had a president who, who really argued against sort of you know it's like an anti quote unquote yeah. woke 
yes. type of position saying, oh, we, we only just recount the past or whatever. Our our historical questions shouldn't be shaped by contemporary politics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which discounts all the kind of Black, specifically Black and Indigenous critiques of history, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily undermining history, but saying, well, these are, this is our historical questions, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are things that similarly, I think, for me, who was trained as Southeast Asianist, and Southeast Asia is an area studies um, discipline, right? If we can call it that. It was interdisciplinary in the sense that, you know, it takes from anthropology, you know, economics, political science, history, all these different ideas, but it's supposed to focus in on a particular region that was a Cold War creation, (laughs) right? Um, So Southeast Asia as a Cold War, as the university understands it, it is a a Cold War creation or a Cold War region. Yeah. And a lot of the questions have been around national development or nation building. Obviously, it's a very anti-communist kind of framework. And I think this is what informs sort of my um, thinking about decolonization, thinking about it as something that historically was not something that just emerges after World War II, which is usually how it's taught. And usually decolonization is seen as just national recognition or kind of recognition of an independent nation state. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, I was more sort of inspired by Franz Fanon. If you just look at that that essay in Wretched of the Earth, the first chapter, which is on violence, right? It basically recounts kind of how a history of decolonization could unfold in a very messy way, right? In the ways that there are claims by a very a bourgeois class, if you want to call it that, and how disconnected they are from more popular forms of decolonization, like demands by the peasantry, demands by workers, demands by the masses, and how they want to keep a lot of the, um, you can say, institutions, colonial institutions, which they had benefited from. And they want to keep that for the new nation. And there are, of course, kind of debates around that and, and that kind of analysis. But for me, when I'm talking about conditional and unconditional decolonization. I think it's a, one way to kind of reframe the question of decolonization in the Philippines, yeah. especially since one can be anti-imperial, as I was trying to show in, in my book, but at the same time want to keep particular banking, financial norms in place, um, keep particular capitalist logic in place and of course keep racial hierarchies in place so i think those are things that i was interested in in bringing on the book and and thinking about us reframing it in its relation to decolonization mm-hmm. rather than seeing those colonizers always reacting to the us but seeing the us as actually reacting to decolonizing movements right. so the us as a counter decolonizing force this is something I'm really inspired by Manu Karuka's idea of counter-sovereignty and the ways he himself is indebted to radical indigenous feminist thinking on that, right? The ideas of indigenous people's claims to sovereignty and how U.S. empire is a reactionary force against indigenous sovereignty. And so this is all kind of a long (laughs) winding way to say that I found intellectual communities, intellectual relationships outside of what I was trained in. Yeah. Right. Both history and Southeast Asian studies, I think, tend to be disciplines or disciplinary. (laughs) And I think there are ways that like my book is kind of weirdly not Southeast Asian and also not really considered quite US because most of it just is in the Philippines. but yet the actors that I'm looking at are like these economic experts mm-hmm. that are white American men. So it's kind of strange. It doesn't really fit into a lot of these categories or genres of scholarship. And so, yeah, there has been resistance. There's a recent review of my book that's been pretty uh, sort of about, I think, policing sort of what counts as Philippine studies. 
there are different kind of areas that my work I just don't feel that welcome in. Yeah. I mean, that's not the really point of scholarship either. Right. So, you know, the book will find its audience. And I've been lucky enough to have like a lot of really great support, mm-hmm. people that transform me, like being in conversation. And I think, um, you know, these questions, these kind of historical questions around being anti-capitalist, being anti-racist, anti-colonial, I think have led me to build relations with really cool people and and really think with them in a way. And I think what's interesting about Twitter, which I wasn't really that involved with or whatever, but until recently, it's it's cool seeing how a lot of the things that didn't seem that, I guess, mainstream, like racial capitalism, the concept of racial mm-hmm. capitalism, is suddenly used by just people not in the academy. Mm-hmm. Like people use it to think through like mm-hmm. their everyday struggles, right? And community struggles. And I think that's really, that's really cool. I think that's like a dope way of our work and the people that I really admire, their work is getting out there, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm interested in questions around disciplines and interdisciplinary mm-hmm. when it comes to sort of the the grind of getting like, let's say more diversity, more inclusion, scholars of color, and yeah. more like radical thinkers in permanent positions mm-hmm, <laughs> in mm. the university, less precarious positions. Um, but for me, I guess I don't have like an investment in like disciplines or the term interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, all those things. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm just more committed to radical traditions, like yeah. like the black radical tradition and the indigenous radical tradition and and the Asian American radical tradition. These are things that I'm trying to mm-hmm. see where they come together and where we can create more bridges between. I love that thinking. I think that's probably the best way to move forward. And it's kind of like, what's the purpose of a university anymore? But I always find that policing disciplines are still very much a big problem today, even despite the kind of the move toward not policing. I still think it's still there. Also surprised to hear that you said um, a review of your book was uncharitable in in the way you're describing Philippine studies and not history. That was really surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a response to it. Readers or listeners can can check it out. I would argue other things that are going on there, but yeah. it was kind of, I guess it indicated a particular, particular kind of reaction that was, to me, unexpected to my book. But yeah, I think... I don't know. I felt like I wrote a book that was very, uh, I don't know. It was disciplined. It was a very yeah. disciplined book. It was a historical yeah. book. With archives yeah. and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, not just that, but I think it was very, it yeah. was kind of narrative driven, like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of old school history, which I never thought through the process of like, my dissertation yeah. is less like this. Yeah. Um, and then as I was doing different versions of the chapters, they were more analysis. Mm-hmm. But this one turned out, the way the book turned out was more like, okay, this is following particular historical yeah. actors. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I would write more like a history type book. Right. But that's how it ended up. Um, so it is, in a way, it was a discipline yeah. <laughs> text. I don't know. It's not a theory book, if that makes sense. It's not a theory. Like, yeah. Um, my dissertation was more theory driven uh-huh. than than this than the, how yeah. the book turned out. If I remember correctly, all your chapters started with um, was it like reports or narratives of report? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a debate within history. It's like, what oh, do we do? Okay. Because a lot of, I guess, methodological approaches look at yeah. archives, right? Like whether yeah. you're literary scholar, they they work on archives, right? Yeah. Anthropology, at this point, really is like archival. Um, sociology, a lot of the big sociology names, they do historical sociology. So they also work in the archives. So what is history? Maybe there, that is kind of like the argument for historians is that we have to claim 
in a very like settler way we have to claim our uh, this idea this doctrine of discovery like this yeah. is this is our territory you know but i think that's an incorrect form of thinking about history yeah um, very colonial <laughs> yeah oh for sure i think any argument for the archive as belonging to a discipline is a very colonial it's an extension of a colonial argument and i think like for me the idea of i don't know if archives necessarily is what makes a, a historian i think it is i think it is the narrative i think mm -hmm. weirdly enough it is uh historians tend to write more narratives mm -hmm. than even literary scholars who are more analytical uh -huh. right so it's interesting how i mean at least this is uh in a way we are just telling stories right particularly sometimes counter stories to like dominant stories mm -hmm. and and that's like kind of the i think one of the contributions for people mm -hmm. who are interested in being historians well, now that we're talking about the archives, I, I want to talk about yeah. your approach. So I think it was in, was it the acknowledgements? Maybe I made a note that you wrote that your archives research was conducted in both the U.S. and the Philippines. And it's very apparent in the way you're arguing about U.S. empire and violent colonial attitudes of expansion ownership. There, there are many, many contradictions in how the U.S. views herself and how authorities from the Philippines reacted. What was it like to weave together a part of history that's often told asymmetrically and as i say as a historian in quotes how do you maintain the desire to critique as much as you describe yeah that's a really i mean that's a complex question i think it's a really important question um i think archival like i was just say, talking about archival mm -hmm. research i think you have to approach it not as like a site of truth or discovery yeah. but actually something that produces truths i mean it's a very like foucauldian <laughs> understanding or even something like i mean i think people like anti-colonial thinkers have argued this like even amy cesar or indigenous people like um hanani k trask these people who have questioned sort of knowledge production but the archives especially in my case since i was interested in in economic expertise i was mostly in these places in DC, obviously for the where the state archives, the national archives are, but also where these, you know, these uh, economic experts made careers off of colonialism, right? So yeah. they ended up becoming academics, teaching in Princeton, teaching in, teaching at Columbia, teaching at the University of Michigan, uh, Chicago. So all these people would either be academics, sometimes in you know kind of drift in and out of academics and politics some would become a, a supreme court judge others would just be in more like state officials or just stay within what was then called the war department now the, called the department of defense and so there are people who drift in and out of these ivy leagues or public ivies um and so knowledge production was always intertwined with with war making right with the military with uh, imperial war making and I think that's something that really came out for me as I was looking at the archives. So even in the Philippines, much of the archives I was looking at was, again, like if if it were Filipino voices or Filipino agents, historical actors, they are the people who were, you know, working in the colonial state. So they themselves were also kind of um, dependent upon, in a lot of ways, American power. Now, of course, they could critique it. They could try and carve out more autonomy. They can do all these things, which is, you know, in some ways admirable. But I think, you know, they're trying to work within power, right, yeah. to gain more power for for what they believe is like Philippine independence. But it is again like it's playing by the same rules, right? Same language, and reproducing kind of the the standards of knowledge that were instituted by American colonial mm -hmm. officials, and then of course the Spanish before them. So being suspicious of the archive is always, I think, significant. Um, whether or not it's written in English or Tagalog or um, Spanish or, you know, I think about it as a side of power and, and something that outlives its its uh, initial um, function. So mm -hmm. usually archives are supposed to just record and keep receipts, right, <laughs> of what's happening. But it also 
as I was looking at it, it is something that really projected particular fantasies about what they were doing right, and why they were doing it. And so for a lot of economic experts, I think it was, you know, the archives reveal a kind of story or narrative of white supremacy. I think arguing specifically like chapter three and four, there is a particular narrative that they create, a historical narrative that they make about the U.S. as developing Mm -hmm. its own capitalism. And so they try and hold the Philippines to that standard, right? By basically saying, oh, well, you have to follow this path that we took, you know, and it took us a century and a half <laughs> to get where we are. So it's going to take you a century and a half, at least under under our sovereignty, you know, to get to where we are in terms of industrial development, in terms of economic expertise, in terms of just the aggregate of trade, um, the diversity of our financial instruments, all these things, they, they were arguing that it took them a certain amount of time to get to where they are, right? Of course, this kind of narrative is a white supremacist narrative because it disavows that it wasn't through innovation and entrepreneurship and and just inventiveness that uh, Americans became rich, but it's through like actual looting, stealing, mm-hmm. captivity of, of African people, um, you know, stealing indigenous people's lands and of course mass genocide right a lot of violence goes into it and so this is something that i think was really important to me was thinking about how how experts who were so wedded to this idea of being very scientific right (laughs) about their about their monetary policy or banking uh, policy really were creating these fantasies about and justifying white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. On this idea of a history of capitalism. And it, it's a way to also just kind of pose that question for how we're writing history today. I mean, it, it's not just we, like there's a universal we, but there are historians who tend to write histories of the US, uh, history of capitalism, even histories of empire in such a way that kind of disavows much of its its white supremacy, right? or other kinds of hierarchies, whether it be a kind of racial hierarchy, heteronormative or heteropatriarchal hierarchies, these kinds of class hierarchies, these kinds of things that get left out of, obviously, the historical narratives that are being produced. I think it's it's something that doesn't necessarily just go away over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the archives kind of show that there is this constant anxiety about presenting um, American colonialism as something that is in some ways necessary in the world, or at least necessary for human progress. So yeah, I think for me, that the book was an attempt to kind of shed light on that in the archives that usually because people tend to not think about uh, the mundane sort of like yeah, yeah, really yeah. boring you know money people and like kind of look at like some of the other obvious like things that are really important too sort of the actual well, like um, boots on the ground kind of violence mm-hmm. but these other people shouldn't be left off the hook either right this kind of thinking shouldn't be left off the hook um, so that's kind of like hopefully <laughs> Um, it kind of opens up maybe more scrutiny of the archives for future researchers. Yeah. You started your chronology, if we can call it that, and then is it 19th century? And then I felt like I remember that, that your conclusion, did it stop at the 50s? Is that right? Or like? It, it stops at the 1930s. Not because of um, the Great Depression, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. The intro on the conclusion kind of referred to after the after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, the conclusion kind of refers to that the post World War yeah um, World War II era is not necessarily yeah. a clean break at all. Right. In fact, it's 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 fundamentally or radically shaped by the American colonial period. So the kind of national recognition of 
Philippine independence huh. really was a kind of conditional decolonization right. where um, a lot of the the debt, both material and I guess ideological debt that the U.S. owed the Philippines, I think was forgiven mm-hmm. <laughs> by those in, in charge in the Philippines, by the leaders, because they wanted to maintain a particular kind of uh, particular norms based on racial capitalism. Right. So um, I really like talking about expertise, and I'm I'm happy that you said it a few times. And I'd like to ask you more about what you claim as this new type of expertise that you deemed as economic expert in your book. Such an expert not only contributed to the capitalistic market, but also would, in, in quotes from your book, naturalize the market as an object autonomous from state and society. You argue that this kind of thinking was yet another way for the colonial state to ward off decolonization movements. Um, and in particular, Chapter 5, you wrote that Filipinos would later use the term expert to reclaim and center their knowledge. When I read that, it was my understanding that the construction of this expertise played a big part in what you named as a conditional form of decolonization, which you have um, cited a couple of times now. In general, what are your thoughts on expertise and how it's used for authoritative purposes? How did this construction of the expert play into what you named as conditional form of decolonization? Um, in my personal pessimistic reading of expertise, I just want to ask you if you think it, if you think it could be a good thing, or is it always a way to reify the colonial other? Mm, I don't know if it's um well the last part. I I mean I don't know if it's a a, a good thing, <laughs> but I don't know if it's a bad thing either. I guess. Um, <laughs> it can I, work. Yeah, yeah. It cuts both ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you're gonna say something. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, I just remember it was. I think it was um in a cha- chapter titled "Mongrel Currencies" when people were deciding what is a good proper use of money, and the way that the U.S. said they call it mongrel was in the mongrel money to to somehow say that the Filipino citizens weren't very. I, I, I'm trying to remember the exact wording that you used. They didn't have the brain capacity to understand how money works and like they were a bit outdated and stuff like that. So that's what I was thinking when I constructed the question. Right. I mean, it is a good question in terms of it is, it kind of gets at the heart of like a lot of the different arguments and how they kind of intertwine. And I think, um, yeah, the idea of expertise comes as a form of fixing um, trying to fix, I'm using that in, in a way of like trying to fix into place. Yeah. So a very like Ruth Gilmore type of understanding <laughs> of of bringing order to what they argue is disorderly society. And I think claiming that Filipinos uh, didn't have the racial capacity to fathom or manage large scale capital in order to justify. Yeah colonial occupation um, and sort of the military pacification of of sort of these ongoing revolutions, I would say, um, or they would call it insurgency. I think this is all part of how expertise works as a a kind of claim to neutrality or as some sort of a neutral kind of knowledge. It's just basically saying this is how the capitalist system or a capitalist market works and this is what you know, we're trying to bring to a modern capitalist market. We're trying to bring this to the Philippines. And it because of this, uh, by bringing this, we can bring stability, a mm-hmm. kind of sense of normalcy yeah. to what they believe is a mixed up kind mm-hmm. of disorderly condition, um, which they blame on the Spanish or, with, or they blame on uh, racial kind of incapacity. But in reality, it's the war, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the war, it's the it's actual U.S. occupation that's made everything so unstable uh, in the in the Philippines. Obviously, it's not, I'm not the first one to argue this. There are parallels at any occupation, right? Whether it be uh, continental expansion in North America, that kind of justification of oh, the place that you live in is a mess, without actually saying our invasion is the reason why it's a mess. Whether it be Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, Vietnam or all these places in which stability and order have to be brought in 
it's not just military it's also like these people who have knowledge right who have knowledge whether it be knowledge of science or agriculture schooling all these things um but the people i focus on argued that there is a such a thing as as a capitalist market and it works this way and what's happening in the philippines is not how it's supposed to be working and so my argument is they're they're actually producing this kind of object at the same time as they're supposedly describing it so it's a it's a double move um in that sense and this expertise keeps getting used to to prolong colonial occupation or sort of the colonial state justify the colonial state showing it's they you know over time into the 1910s they argue well look at how much of a success it's been so we should keep keep this going and all these kinds of justifications and alibis for colonial uh, occupation but uh, around the 1920s or end of the 1910s you start to get more and more bureaucrats or civil servants that are Filipinos and they're also getting trained under Americans right it's part of their tutelage colonial tutelage system and and so the contradictions of American colonialism really starts to create frictions in in mm-hmm. the sense of oh okay so these experts have trained Filipinos and even though they're not obviously on the same par as Europeans or or white Americans they are still getting a kind of training and to the point where eventually by the 1920s a whole generation that weren't part of the Philippine American war but grew up in the wake of it have sort of appropriated that knowledge right and are making claims to to that side of sort of expertise and so in this way the contradictions of the the claim of expertise to have universal yeah they're just basically having universal knowledge they're describing the world as it is right mm-hmm. um the same argument is being made by filipinos in the 1920s yeah. by saying well we we actually are describing the world as as it is and what we're seeing is that we as we have indigenous like uh and i'm, I'm putting air quotes around that yeah. it's not the same thing as like yeah, indigenous actual indigenous mm-hmm. knowledge but it's a particular kind of knowledge yeah. that they supposedly have natural yeah. knowledge of of the Philippines and how it should mm-hmm. be governed in the same way it's like they believe that the US is actually being more chauvinistic by trying to keep the Philippines on a US dollar mm-hmm. instead of on one hand listening to Filipino experts mm-hmm. and also kind of uh moving away from the gold standard which yeah. they're saying is a more universal standard than the dollar standard right mm-hmm. and so there are all these ways that these tensions of empire these contradictions of colonialism really come out in this claim by experts over time right that's what i'm trying to trace is this arc of i mean you could say it's a dialectical kind of contradiction that that emerges uh, by mm-hmm. the time of the late 1920s early 1930s yeah and I remember it, it was somewhere in chapter five. It said that they they claim both knowledge on understanding their native knowledge and then also the the Western knowledge. So they they had the capacity to to talk back and then recenter what they thought was appropriate for them. So I thought it was actually an interesting use of how how you were showing that they understood the Western market logic as both a foreigner and as a a native and I use it in air quotes too so yeah 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 in terms of the idea that the chapter five was on the great depression so this moment of upheaval um and everything's up in the air it seems and it seems like the U.S. basically is trying to and it they were um so FDR goes off of gold and basically makes everyone turn in their gold at a set uh-huh. price and so everyone within the U.S. empire, including the domestic settler mm-hmm. uh, metropole, but also everyone who's part of the territories, right? Uh-huh. And so this means the U.S. state makes a lot of money off of this mm-hmm. because suddenly they have a bunch of gold mm-hmm. whose value is much more than the set price, right? And Philippines are angry about this because they're like, well, <laughs> we're not going to get a benefit from this. This is going to the federal government. 
And it's just an example of what they think is as as the ways that um, the U.S. doesn't care about the actual needs of the global capitalist system, and in fact are actually just doing this kind of like mm-hmm. very chauvinistic or working in in terms of it's a very um, I guess uh, anti-universal, mm-hmm. um, a non-expert type of move, right? A very political move, mm-hmm. as they would they would argue. Um, so in that way there's a critique of the non-universality of of u.s empire but because of these upheavals this instability they're trying to find natural like they're trying to fix and bring order to the world in and through a kind of natural uh, relation to uh, the philippines as a kind of the archipelago as a kind of nation that has resources so they go towards gold the idea that there's wealth underneath the soil in the in rocks or whatever in, in the earth but also the idea that they themselves are like these natural resources right the idea that filipino experts have this indigenous type of knowledge mm-hmm. and that they should be the ones in charge of the economy and so it is again a kind of fantasy that they're kind of create about themselves about mm-hmm. the nation and it's an argument for, I would say, kind of a decolonization, but it's conditioned on the idea of that we're going to be conditioned on the idea of keeping a kind of capitalist logic, yeah, a kind of racial hierarchy mm-hmm. um, that's in place. So, yeah, those are just some things that I wanted to build off of from the, your mm-hmm. initial question. <laughs> yeah. I want to make two maybe final notes about your book. I read your acknowledgments and I guess it was my understanding that you wrote it during, is it 2020, right? That was when you started working on it. When I read your book on money, I thought my my thoughts immediately turned to George Floyd because we know that, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's about money. Counterfeit. Right? Yeah. So that was the mood that I read it in. And then your, your ending was a bit bleak. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like you admitted that it was a bit bleak. And I wonder, how do you feel now after some time has passed? Would you write a follow-up? Because I think you said you ended at the 30s, 20s, 30s. 30s, yeah. I think it's bleak as in the world that we live in. It's, uh, you know, some people describe it as a new Gilded Age in terms of the vast inequalities and the kind of gratuitous violence towards specifically racialized non-white people specifically of the U.S. Black people, as uh, you were just talking about, the revisions were happening at the time of sort of the movement for Black lives in response to, at that time, (laughs) George Floyd. Of course, there's always these kinds of police murders. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think think it is bleak in the sense of the world that that we still live live in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still feel like there's few that can be like, repaired in that sense but i think i think i've learned a lot from just abolitionists Mm -hmm. and thinking about that in relation to ongoing decolonization movements and thinking about it yeah there's i mean i think the book begins by posing the question of why do they have to try and save this world why is it so unimaginable to imagine a different world right other outside of outside of capitalism outside of U.S. empire. And I think that's what I was trying to get at in the very first story mm-hmm. about basically how unfathomable it is that if the, the U.S. dollar fails, you know, all of us fail. <laughs> that's how the world that we live in still works. It's like uh, so much is tied to the reserves of U.S. dollar as the currency reserves for most of how capital moves, right? And how things get resourced, whether it be like social programs or getting actual food to people or medicine to people. It's still, unfortunately, still largely dependent on different nations being dependent on on U.S. capital or specifically the U.S. dollars, right? And of course, mm-hmm. there are other counter movements to that, you know, trying to go through other currencies, whether it be China or there are talks within Latin America to try and bypass any other, you know, just kind of have one within pan-Latin America or pan-African kind of currency 
systems, and those are really promising. But ultimately, it does come down to, I think, how abolitionists really argue for building new kinds of worlds, right? A new world system, a new world full of institutions of flourishing, of abundance, rather than the kind of scarcity, catastrophe, crisis that we've inherited. The book opens up by saying, I think, um, that there is another world that's still possible. The thing I'm hopefully hopefully comes across i don't know it's a good question in terms of what is hope and how to you know because it's been so uh, abused by politicians right the concept of hope i I don't think is obviously lost right to to politics there is a a kind of attachment to the possibility of another world i think Mm -hmm. that's something that uh, i still have and I think it, it, it can only come about by kind of really rethinking what what kind of world we live in yeah. today, right? Being very real about it. <laughs> well, I feel funny asking you this last question, Alan, but I want to know what other projects you're working on <laughs> that you can share. If one is about hope, I'd be really interested. In yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually kind of, it's changed somewhat. I mean, I was always interested, even while I was writing this, you know, being on the job market, all these things, you're always supposed to have like a second project. And my second project has always been thinking about sort of labor mm-hmm. and thinking about trans-Pacific labor. Recently, I've been thinking, kind of reflecting on the whole process of publishing this last book and kind of the audience that I want to write to. This project that I've been researching and going to start doing more focused researching on is going to be about the Pacific Northwest, um, basically the same time period from the 1870s through the 1930s. So these two bookended Mm -hmm. depressions, so the Long Depression to the Great Depression, and looking at at extractive economies, usually the Pacific Northwest is kind of seen as sort of, that's where I grew up, seen as sort of this idea, uh, sort of extractive economy of logging, trapping fisheries, and uh, and mining, usually not really seen as an industrial powerhouse. Now it is in terms of e-commerce, in mm-hmm. terms of like software, and yeah. you know, that's where Amazon and Microsoft and all these things are, right? But before that, it was considered like a frontier, right? A very settler sort of place of, mm-hmm. of a boom and bust. And so it was a very extractive economies, but it was a lot of anti-Asian violence that happened there because a lot of trans-Pacific migration happened, whether it be Chinese, Japanese, South Asians, and Filipinos. And so I'm interested in in rethinking extractive economies in and mm-hmm. through, not just like those things that we traditionally think of in terms of the, those kinds of sectors of logging or or um, drilling and things like that, but really the kind of labor around it, of course, but also the kind of policing that happens around it. So I think of policing as, and the criminal justice system and all those things that happen around these boom and bust areas as a kind of extractive mode mm-hmm. of producing capital. Similarly, the kind of logistics that can start to connect the Pacific Northwest to Hawaii, um, Southeast Asia, East Asia. Mm-hmm. It's, um, so that's kind of what I'm interested in thinking through is is rethinking the Pacific Northwest as a kind of imperial borderland. Yeah. And um, yeah, just kind of following some of the books that I really, really have liked recently have been on a geographical site, like Walter Johnson's book, Broken Heart of America. It's like really beautifully written history about St. Louis, but its relation to the rest of North America and questions and sort of historical questions of um, racial capitalism and indigenous violence and slavery and all these things are condensed into this history of the city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that I'm kind of interested in doing for the Pacific Northwest as well. Yeah. Maybe we were neighbors at one point. I lived in Seattle <laughs> for way before it oh, became yeah. the text. Every time I come back, it's just... I don't recognize the actual 
We might have. I was been neighbors. I went to Portland PhD. a lot. Yeah. yeah. My partner was doing his PhD at UW. So. Oh, really? Okay. That's where I did mine, obviously. Like yeah. I, I did it from 2007 to 2013. It's interesting that we have parallels because you're in Montreal. <laughs> Maybe next year yeah. I'll be in Germany. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Berlin. That'd Berlin, be... yeah. I, I did like Berlin when I visited it there once. I liked Berlin, but people really do fetishize Berlin a lot. But, I'm um, sure it's changed too. People mm-hmm. always said how how cheap Berlin was, and so it had a lot like it had more of like a subculture, a little mm-hmm. more punk energy. But that I think it's all long gone. Alan, I yeah. want to thank you so much for this interview. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. Um, I'm not sure if I, if I was a reader, you imagine, but I really enjoyed it. So, so thank you for participating. No, yeah. no, thank you. I appreciate obviously any engagement, but I think you're actually genuine in your engagement, and I, I really appreciate that. And of course, like I think, like uh, from what I know about your genealogy of thought yeah. and you're thinking it's you're definitely the audience that I was trying to, <laughs> to reach um so thank you for that and hopefully like we can keep our conversations yeah. going obviously not just here but elsewhere on twitter and, or yeah um or when you're writing more of your writings yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i'll definitely have you back on whenever your second book project about <laughs> Pacific Northwest is on. Thank you so much. I'll keep in touch and I hope you have a good academic semester. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much again. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.